This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning. Thank you, Kim. So have you all ever started a project or made a commitment and not followed through with it? Has anyone ever done that? No, never. How about like a New Year's resolution? I do that every year. It's about this time of year I realize I'm not going to make it three months into the year. I have a great plan for reading, a reading plan or either an exercise plan. And it's about this time of year that I realize, oh, that's not going to happen again this year. Or how about something that you volunteered for? Maybe you were excited about it, an opportunity, a ministry, and at one point, and you raised your hand and said, I'll be in charge of that, I'll take care of that. And now you're finding your enthusiasm has waned a bit, and you're kind of going, hmm, I'm not so sure about that anymore. I actually, as I was prepping for this talk yesterday, as I was sitting there working at my desk, I looked over at a pile on my left-hand side of my desk, and sitting there is three boxes, and each has a name of each one of my boys in it. And when they were born, I had this idea that I would create these beautiful baby albums for each of them. (laughs) And it's kind of ironic. My oldest son is 13 now, and those boxes are still sitting there with their names on it. (laughs) There's little mementos tucked in there. There's even the albums. There's a few pictures scattered here and there, little notes I jotted down and thought, oh, I don't want to forget this. (laughs) what's funny though is my boys come in and they look at it and go mom can we look at our albums like nope someday maybe someday but a lot of us we get excited about a project and we don't quite follow through I know there's lots of uh, do-it-yourself websites that have great ideas we get excited we think oh we'll do this painting project or sewing project or remodel project or like I said personal goals we commit to something and we don't quite follow through Well, this is the situation that the Corinthian church was in, that Paul is addressing in chapter 8. And he's coming to them saying, you know, you said you wanted to give to Jerusalem. You said you wanted to take up an offering for them. We even came up with a plan for this a year ago, and that plan was shared in 1 Corinthians 16, to set set aside money each Sunday. But yet the Corinthians now weren't following through. And Paul's saying, okay, You guys, come on. Now it's time to put your money where your mouth is. Well, just to give you a little background about what's going on during this time, this is, during this time period, there was incredible difficult economic times, and there were severe droughts throughout the Roman Empire. There was also political unrest. So the church in Jerusalem, where it all started, where the gospel started, the center of the gospel, It's one of those churches that is experiencing the most um, economic struggles. I'm getting really loud. Is that too loud? Okay. (laughs) I felt like I was starting to be like, woo! Okay. Um, The church in Jerusalem was starting, was one of the churches that was suffering the most because of these economic downturns, because of the drought, and because of the political unrest. 
Now, the other churches throughout the area, like in Macedonia, those churches were also suffering and were living in poverty. But the Corinthian church, being a port, like I don't know if you remember, but in our opening day, we talked about the location of the city. It's on an itmus, and it's a major trading point, so they had several merchants coming through. So they were doing well. Even though the rest of the region was suffering, they were economically thriving. So Paul, in chapter 8, broaches the ever-delicate subject of money, and he brings up their promise to collect for the church in Jerusalem. So if you want to turn your Bibles to chapter 8, I'm going to start with verse 1, even though Alyssa covered that last week and our lesson covered that last week. I just want to start there because it gives us the background. Now, it's interesting that in the book of Corinthians, there's 13 chapters, and out of this letter, two of those chapters are focused on giving. So it must be something important to our relationship with God, to our relationship with him, and to where our hearts are. So 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know the grace about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So he's saying the Macedonians, even though they were impoverished, they gave generously. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us. Can you imagine these people who are living in poverty coming to Paul and pleading? He says, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, he said, but they gave themselves to the Lord first. Now this is key. He's saying the Macedonians trusted God. They gave themselves to the Lord first. They surrendered to him. So they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Then he goes on to explain, so we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to the completion this act of grace on your part, this act of giving, this act of a donation, of a collection for this church. He's calling that a grace. But just as you excel in everything, and now he's talking to them as a parent would talk to a child. I do this with my kids when I find that they're struggling or there's they're discouraged about something. I remind them of the things they excel in. And then I remind them that they can accomplish the thing that lies before them, that might seem impossible to them, the task that is before them. So he's speaking to them as a parent would a child. He says, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Again, he calls this giving a grace. He goes, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So he's raising up the example of the Macedonians to them. He's saying, look at these people. They gave, and they were in poverty. How much more could you give when you're living in a time of economic growth? And then he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is perhaps my favorite verse. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, that word grace, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you see what the Macedonians were doing there? Through their poverty, they were giving so that the Jerusalem saints would become rich. They were mirroring. They were so encapsulated by Christ. They were giving themselves first to God that they understood about giving, about this grace. As Alyssa said, this, the word grace, the Greek word for it is charis, and it's more than just a gift. It is the heart of God towards us. It is his spirit of yes, as she said last week, towards us. It's his yes saying, I'm for you. Yes, you're worth dying for. Yes, I love you. Yes, I will be with you always. Yes, I am preparing a place for you. Yes, you belong to me. Yes, you are mine. Charis is God's heart towards us. And the Macedonians understood this. If God's heart was for them, then they could be for anyone. Their hearts could be for anyone despite their circumstances, whether rich or poor. Verse 10. And here's my advice, Paul continues, about what is best for you in this matter. He reminds them, he says, last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to, to do so. So he's applauding them. They were the first to bring this up, to want to care for the church in Jerusalem. And he says, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do this may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. You see, it's not about the amount you give. It's about the heart. It's about the willingness. That's key, ladies. It's not about the amount we give. It's about our heart. Are we willing? Are we eager? When my kids, when I say, honey, can you... Um, unload the dishwasher, and they come forward and go, oh, mom, and through the whole time they're grumbling. It's so discouraging as a parent. But if they come and say, mom, can I unload the dishwasher, and it's their idea, and they do it, that is such a gift and a blessing. It's truly a blessing, the willingness, the eagerness to do it. That is an acceptable gift to God, not a grumbling gift, but an eager gift to say, Lord, how can I serve you? Verse 13, our desire, he then goes on, Paul then goes on to remind them, he goes, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, you have plenty and your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. And he quotes in verse 15, a verse from Exodus. He reminds them of the time in the, of the Israelites in the desert. And he says, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. And he's referring back to the manna that God provided, that each day as the Israelites woke up, they were told to go out and collect the flakes of manna off the ground and he said, don't collect too much, because it'll spoil. But just collect enough for that day. 
and they did this six days a week, and on the sixth day, he allowed them to collect a little bit more for the Sabbath day. But God provided each day, and in Exodus, it says each person had just enough. They had their daily bread. Verse 16, I thank God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same concern I have for you. So Titus has the same pastoral concern for the Corinthians as Paul. And he said, for Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Again, you see the eagerness there, the willingness? He's not dragging his feet going, oh God, Paul, you just asked me to do this. I don't want to do this. God, please don't have Paul ask me any more things to do. I'm so tired. I just want to stay in my bed all day. He's saying, okay, let's do this. I'm excited. We're going to see God act in huge ways. We're going to see this Corinthian church be a blessing to another church. We're going to see big things happen. And we are sending along with him, and then Paul goes on to explain that he's also sending another brother, and I love this, he says, who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. And in reading about this, trying to figure out who this other brother was, even though he doesn't... um, name him. Some of the theologians and commentators believe this to be Luke. So pretty cool to think about that. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Again, you see the eagerness, the desire, the heart. They're not living with apathy towards the church of Jerusalem and towards those who are suffering. When we live with apathy, we know that something's wrong with our heart, that something's gone astray. Paul goes on to explaining the details of how this offering would be handled. He says, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. And again, you look at the word liberal, defining gift. That's showing that it's a generous gift. That word liberal means that it was given freely, not with restraint, not someone saying, oh, here you go, you can take that little bit. They're saying, here, take this, have this, let this bless you. They're giving generously. And Paul says, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. He wants to make sure that this offering is taken um, whenever you do financial things, you've got to be careful because, as many of you know, people question or can, can um, question your integrity, and he's making sure that it's handled well. He's, he's bringing along two other people with Titus to bring this gift to the Jerusalem church. And he says, in addition to him, and this is where he mentions the other brother who is going, we are sending with them the brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous. And now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. And as for my brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you. Again, he's closing with parental words. Show them the proof of our love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Now, Paul has a vested interest here. If you remember, like in our study of Acts and in different books, the Galatians, book of Galatians, 
you know that there's a lot of tension between the Jewish and Gentile believers. So one of the motives in collecting this financial gift for the Jerusalem church is to show the Jewish believers that the Gentiles are part of their church body to help lessen that tension between the two, to bring them together, to unite them, to show that they're for the same cause. Because the Jewish were a bit suspicious, suspicious of the Gentiles because of the different issues of the rules they didn't have to follow, such as circumcision. And so this has helped bringing the church together. That's the other motive behind this, not just a matter of um, supporting a brother, but it's also a matter of bringing unity to the church body. And what I love about this, and what your study points out too, is that Paul's describing key people to his ministry. Even though he might be the one writing the letter and speaking and the one that we're most aware of, he's saying there's others that are a huge part of this. And that is so key to, to realize. I know that, I was just thinking about this morning, I might have prepared the talk, but we wouldn't be here if we didn't have a sound team if we didn't have Michelle up there and the different the other women who volunteer up there each morning we wouldn't have um, coffee that would be devastating <laughs> if we didn't have a coffee team that showed up a half hour early and went in the kitchen and made those fresh pots of coffee and tea and those that came come afterwards and clean it up we wouldn't have small groups if we didn't have small group leaders who were willing to invest their time each week and prepare their lesson and pray over you ladies and come here and say, God, use me. Shepherd these women through me. Linda Mitchell and Lori Kent and so many others greet each morning. They open the door for us and give us a big smile as we come in. All of these make Tuesday mornings work. And it's that teamwork that's so crucial for God's ministry. So how do we foster a culture of giving generously in our own lives? That's the question I want to ask you this morning. And as I thought about it, I came up with four different ways that I see that occurring. How do we foster a culture of giving generously in our own lives? The first thing I would say is that we remember that God is the owner of everything and we are his stewards. It was interesting this weekend, one of my sons, Connor, we were at Toys R Us buying a birthday gift for one of his friends, and he found the little Pez candy in, you know, at the checkout aisle, the gotcha aisle, as you're trying to get out of the store as fast as you can. He grabbed that, Mom, can I have this? And I'm like, okay. So he brought home a bunch of Pez to refill his little Pez thing at home. And when he got home, his brothers were like, can we have one, can we have one? And he said, no. And then later that evening, we were out, Jason and I were out with Brayden and a friend, and we took him to a store, and Brayden bought Swedish fish. And, a, and he, of course, brought that home, and his brother said, can we have one, Brayden, can we have one? And he's like, no. And the irony of both of these is they borrowed the money from Jason and I. But no, they would not share. We have to remember that God is the owner of everything, and we are just his stewards. God gives all men and women life, breath, and ever, everything else. Kim Kelly Minter says, we know inherently as believers that everything we have has been given to us by the Lord. 
our homes, our cars, our 401ks, our jobs, our savings, our health, our clothes, our food, our furniture, our spending cash, the chairs we sit on, the beds we curl up in, and the kitchen tables we dine around all come from him. Every possession is a gift. We may have worked hard for it, but it's still a gift because God gives us the opportunity and the power to work. We may have made a smart investment, but it's still a gift because God gives us the wisdom and the wit to grow our money or to turn that business around or to choose the right stock. Everything we have is a gift. We are his stewards. We didn't earn it. I was reading an interview with Melinda Gates, and um, I don't know what her faith is, but one of the things that struck me is she said this truth. It's, it's a biblical truth. She said, why wouldn't I be an advocate for women in Africa, for women who just, for the simple fact that where they are born are denied clean water, education, and medical needs, simply because of where they're born. She's like, they're no different than me. And she goes, why would I not advocate for them? She gets the truth, whether she realizes it or not. She realizes that everything is a gift. We are his stewards. God is the owner. The other way we can foster a culture of giving generously is to take an honest look at what our heart treasures. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verses 19, He says, do not store up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Now remember verse 8-5, the Macedonians? It says they gave themselves first to the Lord. Their heart was with the Lord. And when your heart is with the Lord, the result is generosity, because you understand what he gave up for you. That's the passage in Matthew continues on, and it compares our heart's sight to our eyesight. In verse 22 and 23, it says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? See, we know that our eyesight affects our whole body. We know that it affects our whole environment. Like when I was trapped in the bathroom two weeks ago. (laughs) That was scary. It was dark. My eyesight had been darkened, and I couldn't get out. But he's saying here, think about that with your heart. Wherever your heart is, that affects your whole body. Your heart is like your eyesight. And a heart rightly directed brings health and wholeness to our entire person. The third way to foster generosity is to remember who provides for us. And not who just provides for us, but who always provides for us. Matthew 6 continues in verse 25, and Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, What you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his or her life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the valley of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the, gra the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? So don't worry. What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Remember how Paul quoted the verse from Exodus? He reminds them that God is the great provider. He will provide the daily bread. He cares more about you than birds, than lilies. He will dress you. He will feed you. You are more valuable to him. When we worry about our money and our resources and our time and our possessions, we begin to hoard them and we keep them close. But what God says is don't hoard things. It's just like the manna in the desert. If you hoard it, it will spoil. But if you give it away freely, if you take just what you then the gospel will be spread. Your generosity will shine and all your needs will be met. And lastly, we can foster generosity when we recognize what Christ did for us and follow his lead. As I said earlier, pointing to verse 2 Corinthians 8, 9, I just feel like this is the anchor of this passage. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul writes about that again to that church. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a humble man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus chose a condition of poverty. He took the form of a servant. Our God came down from heaven and took the form of a servant. He was connected, not just that, he was connected to a poor family. He didn't even, even though he was in the line of David, by the time the lineage had, had um, progressed, it had disintegrated down to poverty. It was no longer a wealthy line and he came into the family of Mary and Joseph. He entered into a poor family. I love Isaiah 11.1. Um, it says in the Old Testament, Jesus is beautifully represented as a shoot or a sucker. Are you guys familiar with that, that come off of your tree branches? That starts up from the root of a decayed tree. Our God Almighty came down and started as a shoot a sucker off of a decayed tree. He came into poverty. His whole life was a life of poverty. He had no home. He chose to be, de to be dependent on charity of a few friends that he drew around them, rather than to create food for the abundant supply of his own wants. He gave. He had no for farms or plantations. He had no splendid palaces like the kings before him. He had no money hoarded in banks. He had no property to distribute to his friends. 
When he died, he asked a friend, a dear friend, to take care of his mother. And we're told that the personal property that he had was just the garment on his back, and those were divided among the soldiers that crucified him. This is the example we're to follow. This is the God we follow. It's crazy. It's upside down. And then he was crucified like a common thief. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, the idea is that he who was Lord and creator of the universe and he who possessed all things was willing to leave his exalted station in the bosom of the Father and to become poor in order that we might become rich is the blessing of the gospel. Lady, that is grace. That is generous grace. That is God's yes to us. That is his charis. God is for us. It's his heart for us, and that's his heart he wants us to have for people. So the question is, what are we doing with the gifts God has given us? And how are we using our resources for his kingdom? And when I talk about resources, I just, not just money, but time, energy, material possessions. How are we using those resources for his kingdom? And are we storing up treasures on earth, or are we storing up treasures on heaven? You see, God doesn't need us to give, but he chooses to use us, to participate, to provide, to give to others, so that we can experience his joy of giving. It's that upside-down kingdom. When we give, we find joy. He does this so that we can declare in a practical way that our security rests in God alone, when we give up the things that we, are, we hold on to, we're saying, Lord, I trust you. My security rests in you. We do it so that we get to know the heart of God. We get to know the kindness, the generosity, the yes of God. We do it so that we can be a part of something bigger and more compelling than anything that we can experience here on this earth, than anything that money can buy. Don't you want to be part of God's story? Don't you want to be part of his kingdom work? And we do this because as we give, our faith deepens, and we learn to be more like Jesus, and a deeper joy, a deeper contentment occurs. It doesn't mean a magical life, but it means a deeper contentment, a deeper joy, because we're closer to the heart of God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for Paul's words of encouragement to the Corinthians to stick with it, to not give up, to rekindle the fire in their hearts for you, to sacrifice, Lord, to give generously, to follow your example, Lord. Thank you for the precious gift that you became poor so that we might become rich, Lord. I pray that you would challenge our hearts, show us areas that we're holding on, things that we're hoarding, things that we're clinging to, things where we're building into the earthly kingdom instead of the heavenly kingdom. I pray that we would release those to you, Father. We just confess those to you and we release those to you. We pray that we would 
be compelled. We would be eager to sacrifice, to serve, to love generously for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.